0: Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down. Now. No, now. Like, right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. (laughs) All right. Let's do how you do in corner. Because I have have a project to do at one.
1: Okay. Yeah, me too.
0: So I'm a little short on time right now.
1: Okay, Chelsea, how you doing? (laughs) From the co Salish land of Seattle, we're By The Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, speaking this week with Chelsea Alvarez and Aisha Hauser. This episode, we check in on each other over Zoom. Then, about 16 minutes later, our audio standards return to normal with an interview Chelsea and I recorded last February with Seattle therapist Ryan Robertson. This is By The Sound.
0: Happy birthday. <laughs> yes, happy birthday
2: to me. Uh I am you know what? Honestly like I'm doing pretty fucking well given the circumstances. I haven't done anything particularly wild. Uh I'm maintaining my sobriety. I haven't texted my toxic ex. I have not cut my own bangs. Um I'm doing okay. I am in a comfortable house with a beautiful yard. I have food. I have a salaried job. My children are not particularly obnoxious. My roommate is helpful and sane. Um, I am doing about as well as a person can do under the current circumstances. We're all healthy. But that being said, Uh, living through a global pandemic is incredibly stressful. I have waves of deep sorrow, anger, anxiety. Uh, Every day is a fucking challenge. I'm in uh, like stress response most of the time, um, which is showing up for me as like. I'm distracted. I space out. I lose the thread of conversations. I'm slow to get things done. Um, I'm not being a particularly good capitalist or like, you know, cog in the capitalist machine. I'm working really, really slowly. Um, But I think, yeah, I mean, that's all to be expected. Um, I have observed something in all of my like um, video calls and meetings that I wanted to like check in with you guys about. uh, I have a theory. So I've used Zoom, Messenger video, Instagram video and Microsoft Teams for meetings. I think Zoom puts a filter on you so you look good and everybody else looks like shit to you. Like I look great on Zoom. (laughs) But everyone I'm looking at, always, like, no offense guys, looks shitty on Zoom. But then if I switch over to Instagram chat, I look like shit and the person I'm talking to looks like shit. So like, have you guys observed any like discrepancies?
0: So I always feel like I look worse on Zoom and everybody else looks great. And I just, just, just really? somebody told me to wipe my camera. And that actually <laughs> helps because I guess my dog is looking at <laughs> my camera. I don't know what the fuck. So I don't. I I've observed, and maybe it's just me being self conscious and a lifetime of conditioning that I need to look a certain way. I've never, never, never felt I measure up. So I just attributed to that. So I don't. Ha- so there is a thing on Zoom that I I just updated this morning that says something like enhance your. What the fuck was it? Wait, let me see if I could see it right now. It was like enhance your face or something. It doesn't say face. Maybe appearance oh, or something. Huh, yeah. So because I'm not on a. I'd laptop love to anymore. do that. <laughs> so. I just I'm self conscious, so I feel like I look more like shit than every. I think everybody else is always more beautiful and attractive than I am. <laughs>
1: I need to go back to therapy. And and how are you doing?
0: My young adult children are home, and um, my husband and two dogs. And even though I'm an extrovert, <laughs> I realize I love my family, and I need a variety of folks. And so I have seven work trips that were canceled that were going to happen between but my last work trip was to houston in february and i was supposed to go on seven more between february the middle of february and the end of june all gone bye-bye so um i'm having fun walking around seattle and playing the we got to come up with some kind of social distancing game because as we're walking people will cross the street but then if there's more than a certain amount of people crossing the street. They go in the other street, and then there's people in the middle of the street. And then somebody <laughs> on next door was like, "Please stop running in the middle of the street." And somebody else was like, "Where the fuck you want people to go?" <laughs> <laughs> this hilarious thing of. And then yesterday, for the first time, I saw somebody walking in a mask. I mean, obviously, I've seen people in masks at the grocery store, but this was the first time somebody like in the neighborhood, nowhere near a grocery store, was in a mask. And I'm like, "Oh my!" And um, so. I'm doing okay, and I agree with Chelsea. It's, somebody described this as a slow moving disaster, and and the anxiety mm-hmm. that goes with that, because I definitely and my, I've been having some fucked up dreams, and I'm like, I can't oh, yeah. remember where my anxiety is, like you know, because in the day I have to function. I'm working, we're all working, and it's not that I can like. <laughs> God bless the people doing puzzles. I'm like, I literally don't even have time to think about a puzzle. And because, partly because mm. everything's taking me double time because I can't fucking concentrate. So, yeah. all of them, you know, it's like, I could get this shit done in a day, but it's taken me a week and a half because I, I can't, yep. you, you said it, like, I can't finish a sentence. I can't, and my mind, so, it's, we're all having a trauma response and, and I think the sooner we, well, I think we do recognize that, but I think some folks trauma response who I'm working with are kind of not that they're pretending it's not happening, but it's like, sure. There's a global pandemic, but let's talk about this thing that is absolutely fucking meaningless. Yeah. No. So what I've noticed is
2: that my boss and her boss are working at double speed. Like they're, they're in flight mode and I'm in freeze. So they're like hummingbirds and I'm like a bear and we're trying to get things done together. And it's, very
0: challenging. So they we, we have, have a bit of trauma response, right? They're oh, absolutely hurting. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I actually um,
2: talked to my boss about it yesterday and he's got analogy. And we've just like kind of pledged to have patience with each other and like try and communicate through this because we're, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. But it is really challenging, like trying to work with people who are um whose bodies and whose body minds are having a very different response to this than my own
1: how are you sarah well i've been feeling some uh, somewhat disconnected with the zeitgeist uh with the mm-hmm. culture because i i hear so much about quarantining that's uh based on this idea of being home and, and working from home and not being able to go out and sitting around and watching Netflix a lot. And for me, it's been such the opposite that ever since the pandemic started, I've been getting out more. I've not been quarantined. I've been working a lot as uh, an essential worker because I'm important. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that is an Instacart shopper. Um, what I hear... Buzzing culturally often doesn't resonate with me, and I think my trauma response was to dive into work, such as it was, as much as possible. More of the the hummingbird thing you're describing, but that has been challenging at times. I found that you know, on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights, when my my kids aren't here with me, I get home from work. It might be late after I've been like just very focused all day on my job, on bringing food to people and all this. And then all of a sudden, I'm in this still quiet space and all my feelings just kind of catch up with me all at once. And that can include sadness, a lot of sadness, because I think I'm absorbing a lot of anxiety during the day from the people around me who are making their like one trip out to the grocery store. And so it's like all of a sudden they're in like perma threatened mode and it's like kind of normal to me, but they're, they're kind of afraid of everything and I'm soaking up all those feelings during the day. And then they just kind of mount at the end of the day. So my, my therapist has helped me with some self care around that. This week was the first time I felt a fear response. Um, being a, a a pessimist generally can bring about a lot of serenity for me when things go as expected so ever since covid hit i haven't been surprised by anything and as such i've just been like calm cuz things are unfolding as i expect um but something really got to me this week i i was hearing about you know this family that wasn't able to see their dad um, because you know he could be infectious and so it just caught up with me that whole thing of, if, if a parent or grandparent or child or whatever, you know gets sick and they go away into intensive care, or whatever, their family members can't see them. And there could be, they could be facing their last days and not be able to be in the same room as their loved ones. And I just, I started getting this anxious fear about, you know, what that could be like for my life if that sort of thing happened. And um, for some reason, my first coping response was that I wanted to hear my always president, Barack Obama. Address the COVID crisis, right? (laughs) Um, And uh, so I go on YouTube and I type in Barack and the fifth autofill result down said Barack Obama coronavirus speech.
0: Wow. And
1: I'm excited and I click on it and there's nothing, it's it's all just kind of random stuff like that. It's not really there but that's interesting to me that enough other people have been wanting to hear <laughs> from our last president
0: yeah
1: <laughs> um the th- they've been searching uh, for it
0: narcissist yeah
1: and 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 I did a further search I looked all over I'm like has barack obama said anything on video cuz for some reason I felt like that could put me at ease um but alas he is not i'm okay Mostly, I, I'm I'm starting to deal with um, feeling stretched thin. W- whenever I'm doing anything, um, I feel like I ought to be doing something else. Um, so when I'm working, I feel like I should be at home homeschooling. And when I'm homeschooling, I feel like I should be working on the podcast. And if I'm working on the podcast, I feel like I should be getting my taxes ready. And if I'm doing that, I feel like I should be doing dishes or laundry or all the things it's hard to time manage. And then on top of all that, you know, I've been encouraged to do self care. Um, <laughs> and I just, I don't know where to fit in benching Netflix when I feel like I have all these responsibilities, you know, but when I'm fully engaged in my work, that, that feels pretty good.
0: So we're doing a fun thing at church. Cause it's Easter. We're doing a virtual egg hunt. Bye. What How? So what we're doing is people are taking pictures of eggs and hiding them. It's like a where's Waldo, but with an egg, oh, people cute. In the congregation, yeah, are sending their own pics. So I sent a few and I also did a fun one where I hung an egg from my glasses, like for the toddlers among us. <laughs> we're like, there it is. Cause you don't want to make it too hard for the littles. So we'll see. I've yeah, never that always felt yeah. cheap to me. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, let the two year olds work for it. Damn it. <laughs>
1: Freaking! Yeah, they know you're doing it. <laughs>
0: yeah, they do. They don't care though. They want the fucking candy. Listen, <laughs> they're, they're in on it. They're like, "Fuck you! Give me the jelly beans." So that's we're true. doing that this Sunday for Easter and telling the metaphorical Jesus story of, you know, yeah, he died and he lived because people talked about him and spread his message of hope, and that's the metaphorical resurrection. We do not, as Unitarians, um, in general, embrace the literal story
1: well even though i'm godless i do feel for all the folks um that this weekend uh won't have passover or easter um or seder or any of that stuff it's we'll have
0: it they're just doing virtually people we're doing virtual services each week and we're doing virtual and the passovers my daughter just told me her friend who's israeli had all her israeli family do zoom passover mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah, and we are adapting on the show. Uh this week's interview is uh going to be Ryan Robertson. Chelsea and I interviewed them back in February and it was uh a really good one, and we're going to try to get Ryan back on the show real soon to talk about uh some COVID specific issues, but the interview as it is is a good one to listen to. It'll have better sound quality than this uh intro and there was a lot of geeky stuff in it relating to star trek <laughs> cuz ryan when, when they came on the show uh was getting ready for comic con and uh a couple of panel presentations that uh had uh, really interesting premises uh so you'll he- you'll hear about that at the end of the interview uh the titles of those panels which didn't take place but I hope it will be some consolation that for the uh interested parties they'll be able to get some uh trekky, uh cosplay and whatnot. I don't even know how to describe it, but <laughs> I know there's okay. a i know some yeah. people are interested in it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, quite a few. They what, twenty five thousand people were gonna be here for Comic Con? They waited a long yeah. time to cancel that. I was like, How is Comic Con still happening? And then finally it wasn't like what a week before or a few days before it was Yeah. But apparently it was what, twenty five thousand people they thought they were gonna when everybody was pretending it was still gonna happen? Yeah. Oh people. It's um, huge.
1: The geek yeah. population could have been decimated. I'm glad they canceled. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Seriously. So this is like our Covid quality podcast. I'm so happy to see you both. I really am. You both bring me so much joy and I'm appreciative of this and as imperfect as it is, that's okay. It's part of dismantling white supremacy cultures. We do not need to aim for perfection. We will do the best we can under a blanket cuz I sound better. Trying. That's <laughs> You're awesome. I love you both. I miss you.
1: Miss you too. Miss you too thanks, guys.
0: I love thank you. you Good to see you. Bye. Coming
1: up after the break, Ryan Robertson. Our guest today is Ryan Robertson. They are the owner of intersectional therapies where they work as a therapist. Ryan Robertson, welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So what made you think it would be a good idea to sit around and listen to people's problems all day?
3: Hmm. well i always want to know the backstory behind things like i think from like the day i was born I i was pretty upset with not having all the information about reality um and i was definitely that kid that had a question about everything like like a good example would be like your standard elementary school math problem that's like you have 20 students and 13 apples how much apple is blah 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 get and i'm like wait a second what kind of apples are we talking about are these red delicious apples because they are count me out and why do we <laughs> only have apples and like who wants to eat apples and i was so much more invested in the relational dialogue than like actually solving that problem um i actually created quite a mess for my teachers for a long time. And then I realized that there was a place that I could do that professionally and, like, actually ask all those questions, get answers, and connect it to all the other thoughts whizzing around in my brain, and that people will pay me for that.
1: That makes so much sense to me now. Because I was also a problem.
3: I am shocked.
1: So... Yeah, that makes a ton of sense that people with curiosity and questions and um, sometimes inconvenient questions would be attracted to, um, well, what do you call it, uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis? Uh, psychotherapy. Uh,
2: okay. Part of your answer just now reminded me of The Little Mermaid, uh, specifically the line in Part of Your World where she's like, ask my questions and get some some answers (laughs) and i know that you did your like final project for um your do you have an msw um i have a i am an lmhca (sighs) okay so you got your lmfao (laughs) (laughs) that's that's the one (laughs) and your final paper was in part about the little mermaid right Um, That was definitely a part of it. So my
3: master's thesis was on uh, biracial identity development uh, because I had never had an opportunity to study such a thing until paying $100,000 to go to a predominantly white graduate school. I'm like, (laughs) hey oh, they have a lot of books. I'm going to read them. Um, And yeah, early on in my thesis, I talk about my naive perspective of race and at the time, being, like, four years old, being multiracial, I had a white mom with red hair and a dark-skinned black father. And, like, my brain just, like, never been good at math. So doing the math, it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to grow up and become progressively white and then grow long red hair. And essentially, I'll be the little mermaid. And that's going to be amazing. And then my brother's is just grow up and get blacker and blacker until they're grown-ass black men. And that's how that's how this whole race thing works when you're four. And so my mom had to, like, stop me and be like, no actually and and she tried to like tell me a story about like a lot of people like to tan to be close to your color you're actually quite hip but I was really upset that I wasn't going to be Ariel that was definitely the harder part for me at that time yeah
2: sorry I just realized I was upset that I wasn't going to be Ursula the sea witch yeah you know and like I can't see why those two couldn't have been friends yeah yeah I just want, like, a full rewrite of The Little Mermaid, uh, where, like, Ursula the Sea Witch just, like, takes Ariel under her wing. Like an apprentice. Like an apprentice. I also would like to see the version where they interrogate why uh, Ariel is so attracted to someone she has never spoken to and, like, literally just, like, lives somewhere else.
1: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's the appeal. It's like, hey, you're nothing like anything I've ever seen before. I love you. Yeah. Well, there's a therapist to me showing up that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like, wait, you're not like my, like the trauma. It's well, it's kind of one way or the other. It's like you either fall in love with somebody that replicates your childhood trauma or is like the complete opposite. And then you're just like stupid about the person.
2: Yeah. What is love? What's love got to do? Uh, what
3: is love? Answer
1: the question. Oh, gosh.
3: I was trying to buy some time with yeah, a tough yeah. one. Love is based on our need for secure attachment and to be with, um, integrated in community. And I think that we're at a partner evolution where we've gone beyond the need to actually partner for the purposes of procreation because we've done a really good job of filling the planet full of people. Yeah, And so I think that what we consider love now is like, We're kind of halfway evolving out of like the necessity of having to be attracted to other people and needing them and then actually being able to choose who we want to be with. So it's a hard question to ask because I feel like where we are evolutionarily is in flux, like with what the purposes of love are.
2: Yeah. Mm. Hang on. Uh. Did you answer my question? What is love? You answered what is love Uh, for? What's a love for? Uh, It's a
3: thing. Um, Gosh, wow. Let me think about that for a second. So what is love? I would say that it is an internal mechanism that compels you to be in relationship with somebody. I'll take that. Yeah. But and like I wanna leave it vague because like that's more to my point is that what like what it is and how it works is doesn't serve the same purpose as it is that you, that it used to. Yeah. And we're still trying to figure out what to do with this.
1: As you were first discussing it, I was thinking of romantic love. Um, but then more more generally mm-hmm. there's I mean, do you think that has changed? Uh, You know, say the love uh, a parent might have for their child, Um, the thing that keeps them from taking the crying shitty thing and (laughs) dropping it off of a ledge? Oh, now we're just
3: talking about chemicals. That's oxytocin. So, now we're talking about, like, the mechanisms inside the body that keeps you from abandoning your crying child. So, yeah, so there's definitely a chemical component. So... Which way
2: do we want to go about this? <laughs> like the social, the chemical, the biological? The interplay between yeah. all of them. Um, I have a hard time not thinking of emotions in general as like chemicals to which my brain is attaching a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that's just me trying to get out of like having regular human emotions and having to take them seriously because honestly, they're a major pain in my mm-hmm. ass.
3: Yes. Yeah. So thinking about specifically oxytocin and like why we have it, I think that you can look at something like that and think that we need to have certain fail-safes to protect us from like death. Like, abandoning our children or, like, being so annoyed by our communities around us that we just wander into the woods and die because Mm -hmm. we're too annoyed to, like, build relationships with people. Because humans can't be trusted to do what's good for them implicitly, we have to have these chemicals in our brain that, like, promote that behavior or else we will just make ourselves extinct. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is what love
2: is. Just a failsafe from extinction.
1: (laughs) So, if that's built into it all, then it would seem uh, that wouldn't be exclusive to humans. Hmm. Oh,
3: now the plot thickens. Yeah. Well, I would say that romantic love is a relatively new concept. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it was way more political before. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, we want to not be at war with this
2: country, so we're going to wear our princess to your prince. Yeah, but and- what about, like, the, the serfs? Mm-hmm. Were they falling in love and fucking? And I mean, everybody was fucking. Oh, like, yeah. Do, do you think that, like, amongst the plain folk, love was political? And like, when when we think about social mores in history, usually what we're describing is the behaviors of the wealthy. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. But I want to know, like, what were poor people up to?
1: Well, the the thing I keep hearing in, you know, feminist theory uh, as, you know, channeled through those who actually read feminist theory, which was just to say, not me, not because I'm against it, but because I don't like to read. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fuck books. Fuck books, you know, (laughs) book burning after... (laughs) (laughs) That's the after party. (laughs) No. um, What I hear uh, from lots of folks... um, is that marriage, for example, you know, just used to be a much more practical thing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an economic arrangement, one that wouldn't be looked to uh, to fill one's soul with meaning, but perhaps just to fill the dinner table with food. Yeah, and that now, you know, because of arts and literature, uh, we're now putting a lot of pressure onto those sexual or economic relationships, which uh, may be by and large unreasonable. And then if we further commoditize the whole thing, uh, you know, make uh, romance materialistic as, as uh, perhaps online dating and social media do, um, then it can become even harder. Sarah,
2: are you advocating for free love?
1: I'm yes. No. <laughs> As a general rule, yes. Mm. Uh, no, but no, not not in my bed. But you know, for other people, sure.
2: <laughs> Everybody just do whatever. Mm. That's my that's my contribution. <laughs>
3: Well, I do think it's exciting to live at a time where open relationships and polyamory are so much more accessible and less stigmatized than before. And my impression is that's directly based on like the de-emphasis on the necessity of having the nuclear family as like the only model that can be a successful example of family. Um, and the fact that we, we we are not so dependent on being with one singular person to meet all of our needs anymore. And the science behind, you know, like what actually makes us happy and having the ability to prioritize our happiness is like kind of a new idea. And with that comes all of this change in like the way we date and interrelate and you know, what makes a successful relationship and even like, being able to say that you were able to successfully leave a relationship that yeah. you outgrew, like, I think is a brand new concept.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: So, I heard you on one of our uh, competing radio programs.
2: Um, <laughs> Are we competing with radio? <laughs> no, <we're not. laughs> Look out,
1: KUOW. Um, I've been thinking about something you talked about on KUOW uh, in an interview about. Um, The challenges that women of color can face finding um, a a good therapist, especially in Seattle. And I, I think that's, it's hard for practically everyone, but what is it, what are the particular challenges that black women might face that white people might not even consider? Oh,
3: gosh. I have a story that I have to tell. So, all right. So, keeping my client's confidentiality. Um, so those of us who live in Seattle, we know that we had a, a pretty big shooting downtown just a couple weeks ago, like right on Third Avenue. And one of my clients um works in a building in that area and they brought in a counselor to talk to the people at the you know, at the office and just make sure everyone was okay and had the resources they need and felt safe to be there. And my client was in between sessions with me and just out of curiosity decided to meet with this counselor. And they were talking about some kind of general mental health stuff. And without solicitation, this white therapist that had been brought in to provide support to these people suggested to my client that she um, change the way she speaks to better accommodate her, the people around her in the workspace. Um, she has... A very strong <laughs> regional accent and is a woman of color. Wow. And she was like, hey, you might want to just work on your tone. <gasps> Unsolicited. Yikes. So my therapist, you know, like, so I'm her therapist, she comes in to process and then heal and repair from this trauma that was placed onto her by a very probably well-intentioned white therapist. And what a lot of people don't know is that that's a lot of my work is helping people recover from the injuries that they've taken in from, you know, well-intentioned white therapists. Mm -hmm. So not only are there, you know, is there Few and far between enough black therapists like to support that population for black people that do seek out therapy, you are also running the risk of taking in trauma just because they are completely unprepared to deal with the needs of those populations. So that is horrifying, and I I really had no idea the prevalency of that until I started working, that yeah. almost everyone comes in with a horror story about how they were shamed or judged or just completely unsupported by, like, a well-intentioned white therapist that just don't, they don't know enough about those communities to support them and not do harm. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, like, you can do more risks to yourself by seeking out help from a person that is not equi- equipped to serve the population.
1: Yeah. Um office hours are a limited resource and um uh well it can be challenging for anyone like I said to find a therapist but uh, amongst those practicing there are many white women and including my own therapist whom I'm grateful for but do you think white people in Seattle should steer clear of therapists who are black women so that they can leave open space uh for uh black women who would be seeking a, a, a another black woman therapist i i ask cuz you know, yeah. about about 25 years ago i was um uh for a time i had a black therapist and a a black doctor and my feeling at the time was oh Look what a good liberal I'm being, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> giving my business <laughs> yeah. to these great Lizing black people who services? are super smart and yeah. wonderful. Um, but now, you know, I've learned a lot. I've learned, mm-hmm. for, for one thing, a lot of what you're talking about now, how hard it can be for folks to uh, find competent care um, and informed care. And so last time I was seeking a therapist, I did come across uh, a, I believe it was a, a black woman. Um, and I remember having the thought, oh, maybe... I shouldn't fill up that space. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, what I would say about that, um, so if this is a person that works at an agency, they may not have choice in who they get to see, and they just have to see whoever they're assigned to. Mm -hmm. But most of my colleagues work in private practice because we can afford to, which means that we get to select who we work with. And so if there is a therapist that, is in private practice that you reach out to as a white person and that therapist of color wants to work with you, they, they get to decide. Mm -hmm. Um, For myself, I do see white clients and what that generally looks like is people that work with communities of color or have children of color or partners of color. Mm -hmm. And they're specifically seeking more like education about their privilege as a, as a white person in relationships with people of color. Um, but I do also try to limit the amount of spaces I give to white clients, mm-hmm. um, because it, I, it is a little bit more taxing for me. Yeah. Um, and I also just want to make sure that it's an appropriate fit. Right, like if I am the a person that can actually provide them tools um, and the opportunity to learn and grow in a safe, non-judgmental environment, and then they get to go be a more you know positive impact on people of color, then it's absolutely appropriate for me to do that, um, and it's also a lot more appropriate for, than that white person to go to all their friends of color and ask for free advice. Yeah. And um, and for me, like it's at least clear that there is a professional relationship. You are paying for this information, and it's my job to provide that, and okay. that I also get to dictate the boundaries.
1: And you said your um, grad school work was on uh, developing uh, biracial identity, and and mm-hmm. do you think it's harder for people to be biracial in Seattle, or do you think that's something that might be coming up in your work?
3: I think that we're kind of only now entering a window where you can identify as biracial and mm-hmm. not just as the dominant minority that you represent. So like uh, a lot of people who are black white biracial are identified as black and tend to personally identify as black and it's kind of a new a new wave of history that people are identifying as both. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously that comes from the one drop rule and that that you kind of couldn't um, occupy both identities until recently. Um, I would say that in Seattle because there are so few people of color. A lot of what people deal with is just being the visibly black person in their school, office, et cetera. Um, and it's usually a lower priority to kind of synthesize having both. You know, like specifically like white and black identity. But I definitely do get clients that want to focus on that. Um, and those are usually people that grow up with like a black and a white parent Mm -hmm. and they just, they want to understand like the, both the power privilege and marginalized identities that they carry.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for, um, people of color seeking a therapist in a place like Seattle?
3: Don't settle for a white therapist just because they're in network that could just, that could definitely do more harm than good. Okay. Do your research, find, find somebody that works for you and just in like, Similarly, just because they're like, they match your racial identity doesn't mean that they're necessarily a good fit for you. That's also hard to say because there's like seven black therapists. Right. There are maybe slightly more, but not by much.
2: Yeah. If a person of color does have to settle for uh, in-network white therapists, Mm -hmm. what questions do you suggest they ask going in? I would ask, who are the people of color in your life?
3: What do they look like? Um, What are your relationships to them? You know, like, how do you recognize the the power differential between yourself and, you know, people of different racial backgrounds? Um, I would ask what books they read. I would ask what communities they're passionate about serving and why. Like, those are pretty good questions right out the gate. You know and if they if if they have never thought about these questions before, that's probably a pretty yeah. good indicator that this isn't the therapist for you. Um, and also if they if they can't acknowledge the power differential in the room between you, that's also a big sign right. So if this therapist refuses to acknowledge that they hold more social power than you do and that they understand what that the responsibility of that is and that they will be careful and mindful of that. If they can't speak to that at all, there's somebody else for you.
1: So, a colorblind therapist is pretty much the last thing you want.
3: Uh, Yeah, Yeah. big yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: And you you mentioned the importance of doing uh, research, Mm -hmm. I I guess, uh, not just in the therapist's office, but before, you know, uh, scheduling the appointment. Um, Do you know of any resources uh, that could be particularly useful to people of color in seattle
3: Uh, multiculturalcounselors.org is a good resource Um, i'm on there as well as pretty much every therapist of color that i know and then we're able to write our own bios on there and really promote ourselves and say who we are here to serve and also the limitations as well like that's another issue with being like a minority therapist is that people assume that you specialize in everything minority and that i can you know like sit with any person from any background and be an expert in whatever they have to work on. So I, I like to let people know what, where my strengths are and what, you know, what I'm equipped to deal with and where my growing edges are as well. And let the client make an informed decision about if they want to work with me.
1: We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. How about schema therapy? Schema you down therapy. with it? What's, what's, more?
2: what's yeah. schema therapy?
1: There's this book called, uh, it, it looks kind of super cheesy, but it's really quite good. It's called Reinventing Your Life, the bake, the Breakthrough Program to End Negative Behavior and Feel Great Again. Um, mm. And uh, one of the great things about it is that you can, you know, answer about two or three hundred questions and quantify all of your uh, defects. So you're into this. Yeah, totally. Because I it, it helped me really pin down my defects. What are your defects? Oh gosh, I I would need to bring you the the chart. Um, it does sound similar
3: to probably my main way of doing therapy with people, which is a narrative exploration. <laughs> so similar to like schemas, I think about patterns that recur in people's lives and like when they've shown up, the frequency of which they've shown up, like. Uh, like a lot of my clients are trying to make it as like creatives in their various fields whether it's writing or photography or tattooing uh, and there's they deal with a lot of imposter syndrome and self-doubt and like a lot of people come in am I really an artist I'm like well let's go back and take a look you know like, like in what ways have you been an artist that have replicated throughout your life Um, and that can give people validation for like the skills that they have innately Um, and also just like letting people know like the story that's been playing out for a long time and often without our consent you know like being born into like a certain family situation where you were subjected to religious and cultural beliefs that may have nothing to do with how you feel internally and just letting people know like hey you know you've been on this road for a while but now you actually get to start driving yourself where do you want to go you know and then people are like well do i need all this stuff that my parents packed into my bag i'm like well let's find out and see if that's actually useful to you now so somewhere like in in that you get to go back and look at your strengths and like what is maybe been authentically part of your personality presentation and what has worked for you and maybe things um, also recognizing when you've outgrown certain coping mechanisms You know, and that it's time to learn a new skill. So similar, I would say. It's like I I think the biggest difference is like I am not like a forms or charts person. Mm -hmm. Like I tend to just store all of that information in my head, and then I will reflect back to the client like what I've been carrying for them. I'm like, oh well, I have all this information that you told me six, you know, six months ago. um, Rather than having it more external, but I could see for a person that wants to like do that and like have something in their hands and like see charts and movements like there's definitely a certain type of brain that wants that.
1: I think it w- that was a happy byproduct. Uh, the the main point was that there are uh strategies in the book for You know, once you've identified where you're really struggling, there's strategies for overcoming Mm -hmm. those things. And, you know, some of them, they just say, well, this is really hard to overcome. You're going (laughs)
3: to... I I say that, too, sometimes. I'm like, well, that sucks. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, like, I would say, yeah, okay, going back into, like, what my day-to-day struggle looks like is just picture a, a... a black femme coming in they are the one solo black femme at their job which is either corporate or tech oriented and the culture is killing them hmm. and they've been hired to do a specific job but no one will let them do that job and they're slowly going insane and like unravel like just unraveling hmm. and i'm like yeah i, I got nothing for that because i don't think the culture is going to change so i, I run a um, I run into that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like just validating that the place that you're in is a terrible place and that it's not conducive to your mental health. Mm-hmm. That's really sad for me. Like I want to have like, and all you have to do is this. I also get feel really um, compromised when the, the information I have is, Hey, you get to do a whole lot of work that no one will ever recognize just so that you can exist in this toxic environment a little bit longer that's terrible feedback to give somebody.
2: Yeah. I mean, how much of your job is like handing people what tools, like what small tools they can use to survive a system that is built to kill them. Exactly. I
3: often just, I think a more important question is how long do you want to keep trying to do this? Yeah, You know, and sometimes we have to have like the evidence to know that, There, you know, we can't stay here and this doesn't work for us and it's not gonna change, and that our energy and mental health is more important to us than to stay and try to fix a broken system.
2: But what if the whole world is a broken system?
3: Well, then trying to find a place where you have agency and identity, a place. And then maybe it's not a place that is rewarded by capitalism, you know, and a shiny income. But if you can find something that means something to you and invest in that and then prioritize that in your life. Ideally you don't have to exist in situations that make you want to kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's hard because like I do not believe. I really do not believe that a lot of those systems are going to change in our lifetime. So I just, you know, my I usually provide feedback so that they are making informed decisions about what they're what they're choosing to do.
2: Isn't that sad? It's It's sad. Yeah, it's sad, but I'm also thinking about, like, how much choice, how much agency do we really have, you know? Like, if your uh, livelihood is dependent on, like, a skill set that you have that, like, is only really functional within these, like, I'm I'm thinking specifically of people in tech because Mm -hmm. I've worked in tech as a Black femme and it is murder yeah
3: yeah Uh, that's like 80 percent of my clients i would say yeah
2: Mm -hmm. and luckily i'm a writer so i can exactly do a bunch of different things i'm not a programmer yeah
3: yeah so what i tend to do is you know like i tend to validate like how incredibly hard it is to be the only person of your identity at your job and and challenge them to start resourcing and like they're like Is there a group that you can join that, you know, that where you guys can share ideas and stories and support each other, you know, in addition to your job, again, that that's the asking them to do more work. Yeah, so that they can exist in a toxic environment. Um, And then specifically about tech, like I've been definitely encouraging people to resource within like the Afro tech community Mm -hmm. and just seeing like, you know, maybe do your own startup. You know, if if that's feasible to you, do some freelance work or at least see if you can work remotely so that you're not in that toxic environment. Yeah. And the number one thing that, you know, if I have an opportunity to say this, if you are an employee of people of color, absolutely let them leave their work to go to therapy during the middle of the day. You have no idea how important that is. Yeah. yeah so all of us therapists who are like perpetually booked, the only spaces we have are like 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Please let your employees go to those appointments without judgment. Please. That's, like, my dying wish. (laughs) That's, like, the number one thing you can do to, like, support, like, Black mental health. Let them go to their appointments. Yeah. During work hours. There's only so much of us, you know. I already work every evening, so. Yeah.
2: Sarah. Chelsea. When you say that By The Sound is a community-invested
1: podcast, what does that mean for our guests? It means that we pay them. Every guest interviewed is paid an appearance fee. Is it normal for podcasts to pay their guests? No. People say all the time that our time is our most valuable commodity, and yet most guests on radio and podcasts aren't paid a dime for their appearances. Huh. Our show's supporters who donate on Patreon help us to pay our local guests, and in doing so, they're investing in our local community. Are there other ways our Patreon supporters can help us pay our local guests? Yes. By the sound, community members who sign up for the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership levels are able to designate their first one to two months donations to a particular local guest of their choosing. Huh? If we are able to get an interview with the person they've chosen, then that guest will receive the amount that was pledged for them in addition to our normal guest payment. This is a great way for fans of the podcast to help us choose our guest, create a platform for interesting local people to share their voices, and to reinvest in our own community. Nice. How do listeners get in on this deal? They can visit bythesound.net and click the donate button. That's bythesound.net. Or they can go directly to patreon.com/bythesound. That's p a t r e o n.com slash by the sound
3: so i do like watching picard um it's just nice to see him i miss him um i will say one thing that's a little bit sad for me that i didn't know that i had is that i having watched tng with my parents i'm Mm -hmm. a little sad that i don't have a child to like make them watch picard with me yeah yeah so well i guess i technically have a 17 year old stepkid but I don't even see him anymore because he's seventeen. So yeah. Let alone, let alone forcing him to watch Picard with me.
2: You can force me to watch Picard with you.
3: Will you be my baby? Yes. Oh my god. Yes.
2: <laughs> what has fandom done for you? Fandom. Oh my gosh. Wow. What a juicy question.
3: <laughs> uh, it's given me life. Um, it's given me an opportunity to be an eternal child. Uh, I love cosplay and I love fantasy and adventure. And more importantly, I need a community in which I can be that person without somebody calling the police. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what is your favorite cosplay that you've done? Mm, one of my favorite ones. Yeah. I would say it's probably my favorite is that I did a dark elf. Um, from uh, skyrim Uh so full gray skin body paint which totally destroyed my bathroom for a few weeks but (laughs) it was a commitment i was willing to make
2: what's your like um what's your pie in the sky dream like no budget wildest cosplay dream
3: uh well there's there's a few of them Uh, I would say that doing Kerrigan from Starcraft would be amazing. If you're familiar, she's got kind of these tendril like dreads on her head. Mm. And since I have real life dreads, I'm like, yeah, I'm always trying to bring my real hair into my cosplay whenever I can. Yeah. But on that note, like kind of my dream, and it's a possibility that I will pull this off in the next month. Female Klingon Warrior, man. Oh, shit, dude. Yeah. Yeah get out of here like what could be cooler than that i have several bat lifts ready to go yeah you do yeah (laughs) cut my wedding cake with one yeah that's that's the dream i don't want it to look crappy yeah like i'm pretty detail oriented and if i'm gonna do it i'm either gonna do it perfectly and people will like their jaws will drop or i'm not gonna do it at all and you'll never hear about it what has to happen to make this dream a reality well, so my brother, my, one of my brothers does mask making. We're the Halloween family. So mm-hmm. if I play my cards right, I can get him to invest in making me the Klingon forehead ridges of my dreams. Oh, shit. And if I can do that and keep my natural hair, then there's nothing that can stop me.
2: I mean, the, the thing that I'm uh, envisioning is the leather work that's going to have to go into... The like bodice. Oh,
3: I'm that's that's an easy thing to. Okay, so one of my hidden talents is uh, my first degree was in fashion design. Right. So I decided to abandon everything about that degree except for the ability to throw together like cosplay on a dime. Yeah. So that part I'm not worried about at all. Okay, cool. It's great. really the forehead ridges. I want it to be color matched to my skin tone. Yeah. And I just don't want it to look shitty.
2: Yeah.
3: I'd rather not do it than have it look shitty.
2: Um. Okay, I mean, I know this is your brother's thing, but what what does it take to make forehead ridges?
3: Well, there's a lot of ways you can do it, and so I actually bought from Etsy like a pre. It's like a prefab forehead ridge, and it's Belana Torres's ridges, which aren't quite not quite as as prominent as I want. Like, yeah, I want full on Klingon because
2: of Belana Torres's biracial identity. Exactly.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but the other ones that they had for sale were jankier. So yeah. Um, doesn't look great. doesn't match my skin. So what I really need to do is a full head mold. And that's the kind of thing that I just can't do on my own. So if I want to sit with my head in a giant plaster cast for a few hours and have somebody else do that labor, like, that would probably work better for me. Cool. Yeah. It's all possible. I just have to, like, actually say that I want to do it. Say it. I want to do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> do you want to do it with me? He's just down the street. Do I want to put my face in a plaster mold? Yeah. And make on forehead ridges yeah
1: I do all the kids are doing it <laughs> so what was looking for Leia all about
2: yeah
3: looking for Leia is a docu series uh, produced and directed by dr Annalise Ophelian and um, I was interviewed to give my take on what it was like to have um, like Leia as kind of like the core female representation in well, specifically the, um, the star Wars fandom, but also just for lots of like young fems growing up, like she's kind of the queen. She's kind of the one. Mm -hmm. Um, I am not nearly as star Wars as I am Trek, Thanks, mom and dad. Appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, like, I can definitely say that Leia, like, the self saving princess, like, she's super tough. She's smart. Like, she knows what she's doing. Um, She will receive help when needed, but she can handle it on her own. And um, so I got to sit down and do an interview with her and just talk about, like, the influence of having that as part of my generation. And what I really appreciated is that. I'm part of a generation that has like a strong female princess hero mm-hmm. to aspire to. And that's pretty great.
2: Sarah, Chelsea? When you say that By The Sound is a community-invested podcast, what does that mean for our listeners? Ah,
1: glad you asked. It means that in addition to hearing our conversations about local issues and interviews with our most interesting Seattle-area neighbors, fans of the show can join our listener community online by supporting the podcast on Patreon. Doing so will unlock access to our private Facebook group.
2: What are we posting in the Facebook group?
1: (laughs) Well, in addition to exclusive previews about what we'll be discussing on the show, we offer a curated stream of the best and most provocative local news stories each day. That's dope. How much will it cost to join? Our online community membership is available to all patrons starting at $5 per month.
2: How else can fans of the show invest in this community?
1: Our supporters on Patreon, who contribute $10 or more per month, will receive exclusive invitations to Buy the Sound meetups at Seattle area coffee shops, bars, and parks, where they could meet by the sound co-host, guests, and other local fans of the show.
2: Sweet. Where should listeners go to donate?
1: They can visit ByTheSound.net and click on the donate button. That's ByTheSound.net. Or go directly to Patreon.com slash ByTheSound. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash ByTheSound. What kind of city would you like to see Seattle become?
3: Mm, A more POC community. Like, I want not just the South end to be the POC area. I want people of color to be able to live in all areas of Seattle and I have the cops called on them and to be able to see neighbors that reflect them. And I want to not bulldoze every building that's more than 10 years old and build a giant square apartment building in its place. Um, I want uh, like diverse restaurants to be open and available and not everything to be a Panera bread. Or an auto zone. <laughs> um, essentially, I want to go back to like 1993 Seattle. Can I just go back to 1993 <laughs> and just watch Darkwing Duck? That, I think that's what I want. I, I would love it to stop being a, like a tech hub. Yeah. I want those guys to move back to California and get off the road. Um, I would say that regardless of what Seattle looks like, I think that I'm here for good. Um, I've been here 30 years now, um, wasn't born here, but I'm pretty hardcore Seattle and there is always going to be the need for me to like, like a person that, of color that actually grew up here who has roots here to support all the other people of color who will inevitably be moving here and trying to survive here. Um, and until there is not the need for my existence, I can't really see leaving. And also my whole family's here and, If it wasn't for, like, the problematic white nonsense, this would be kind of the best place to live in the world.
1: Something I've been finding um, as an Instacart shopper and a cat sitter, um, I've been in contact with a lot of people who appear to be new to the city, uh, who are living in the places, in the new places, Mm -hmm. in the places I can't afford to live. um, Totally. I have at times been surprised by the diversity and I'm also living on the the far north end of town um it's there's a lot more like Ethiopian folks or Eritrean mm-hmm. um and in the north end yeah yeah huh. like uh lake city and mm-hmm.
3: oh uh, yeah well that is true a lot a lot of my transplant clients the only places they can afford to live is the north end mm-hmm. and that kind of surprises me cuz like i've been a south end kid and that's where all the color has always been so not it t- anymore it took me a while to update to actually figure that out but yeah that's absolutely true and it's so popular to live in a, diver- a diverse neighborhood like 98118 is and so all the white people move in because they want to be around people of color and then you know, people of color are like, hey, I can sell my shitty house for seven hundred thousand dollars. Yep. Why would you not do that?
1: What What do you think is the the place for people of color coming into town? You know, without roots in the community, mm-hmm. who might be, you know, living in that sterile apartment building, feeling alienated. Is this something you're seeing in your practice? Perhaps. Um,
3: <laughs> yes, yes, but um, I but as people tend to move in and they keep expanding all over the city like so the question is like where do these people go to find community and support
1: well we tend to hear a lot about gentrification Mm -hmm. in terms of like the existing you know people of color being pushed out of neighborhoods um something i'm seeing in my grocery delivering is people of color living in you know uh, a lot of Places where they're surrounded by other tech workers. Well, when we
2: say people of color, who are we talking about? Are we talking about the black people being pushed out of the South End? No, Mm -hmm. not that. Yeah, like we're talking about like affluent tech people of color. Yeah, largely Asian, Mm -hmm. almost entirely Asian. Yeah.
1: So I'm I'm I'm, I keep wondering what is the place? Assuming that a whole heck of a lot of those folks are going to stay around, you know, where's the place for them? You know, well.
3: I would say that the that demographic tends to have, like, the financial access Man, to fuck anywhere rich they people. want.
2: Yeah, I don't like, give a fuck. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, I, don't give a I, fuck, give fuck. I don't give a fuck where they find community. I don't give a fuck what they do. <laughs> fuck rich people. I, say fuck them. Fuck them. I was going to say. Not concerned.
3: If you have the means, live where you want to live.
1: And tip your Instacart driver.
3: Yeah. Like, <laughs> heavily. Yeah. Like, <laughs> don't be a dick. Like, just Whedon's law in general. Yeah. Um,
2: fuck rich people.
3: I, I, I would say that, like... Mm, like where my heart goes out is definitely like poor disenfranchised black families that are being forced out. Like as opposed to finding nice homes for affluent
2: people of color who have access to wealth and more wealth. Fuck rich people. Do I have to? I mean, I'm it's like a, it's, it's not literal. Oh, oh, okay. Can I still? Yeah. If you want. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) Our guest today has been therapist Ryan Robertson. They will be on a panel at Emerald City Comic Con called Kinks, Coils, and Curly Cosplay. They'll also be on a panel on Star Trek and
3: diversity.
1: Diversity. Uh, those events will take place on March 13th and March 14th. They can be reached at www.intersectionaltherapies.com. Ryan Robertson, thank you very much.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Chelsea, what are you grateful for this week?
2: The London Plane. This is like so this is fucking bougie. But <laughs> the London Plane in Pioneer Square has a like self-service um floral arrangement station and I like to go there every so often and Make myself a fucking bouquet. Buy myself flowers. And I get to you deserve it. Thank you. And I get to only pick the good shit. There's no fucking stargazer lilies or any like bullshit ass bachelor's buttons, fucking <laughs> yeah. baby's breath, horse shit. Yeah. You're a plant witch. I am. Mm-hmm. I am. The hedge witch. A hedge witch. Sarah, what are you grateful for?
1: I'm grateful for Dungeness Crab. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: I can get down.
1: I'm with that, <laughs> um, be, I, I, and and in part because uh, you know I I'm mindful that they're likely to go extinct in in my lifetime or at least not be you who know, isn't these days uh, right uh, uh, available readily. Uh, uh, so of course I'm I'm trying I. Ever since I learned of that, I try to eat uh, as much as I can when it's available.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) Um, you know, but it (laughs) needs to be on. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Like, it's I, I am statistically insignificant in this process. Um, But you know, uh, and also, it's a a simple joy uh, that is affordable when it's affordable, which is during peak crab season so
3: I, I get you on that and i feel similarly about sushi because mm-hmm. it's gonna be full of mercury and radiation soon and hmm. i need to get my fill now
1: mm-hmm. yeah eat up yep. um
2: i feel that way about coffee same yeah it's gonna cause like post- a billion crash, dollars it's just yeah it's
1: yeah not gonna. yeah fuck i can't deal with the the we, we can't lose coffee so with uh, this this Gratitude corners being uh, recorded on my birthday, so um, Happy birthday. last night I uh, went. I stopped by the grocery store and I bought myself a crab, and I went home with you know I I cooked up some um, you know cleared. Uh, You're so
3: fancy distilled
1: butter clarified with, butter uh, clarified butter with uh, uh, garlic and um, got some uh, sourdough bread. And living uh, your
2: best life. Yeah, yeah so yes. it was
1: it was it just so happened it was right around midnight. Um I just ate a fucking crab and it was I ate it all and it was delicious. It was that I'm super grateful for that. And on my way home tonight, I'm gonna go get myself about a half rack of ribs, uh, <laughs>
2: Oh my god, <laughs> eating good. Wow.
1: Some hush puppies, some mac and cheese, um Things are going to get messy.
3: I have a lot of gratitude for how well you take care of yourself.
1: Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. I, I, you know, it's actually possible. I'm a bit over decadent with, um,
2: don't stop. Don't stop. There's Do no it such up. thing. Do it
1: up. I'm,
2: you're going to die someday. Probably, soon. probably <laughs> soon. Most of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm, 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 I'm Pretty good at being uh, hedonistic.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Ryan, what are you grateful for this week?
3: I'm grateful for my kitties. Yes. Yes, yeah, Spaceship and Vega. So Spaceship is a calico who smells like baby powder, and she's derpy and wonderful and empathy cat. And then Vega is our Devon Rex kitten, who is a very weird cat. But man, I love watching her do whatever it is that she's about to do. And it's always a different thing. So the mystery continues. And, yeah, just going home when it's wet and drippy out and getting under a blanket and having cats, like, climb on top of you. Yeah, happy place.
1: I'm so happy you said that. Uh, uh, Cats have been honored in one way or another on almost every episode of our show. Yes! (laughs) Thanks again to Ryan Roberson, and thank you to all of our listeners and supporters. By the Sound is your community-invested podcast. By the sound is an ahoy, hoy media production. Ahoy, hoy.